This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, everybody. On tonight's show, with Stephen's pick, we're going to be taking a look at the work of the director Edward Yang, in particular the film The Terrorizers from 1986. Uh, but before then, we have obviously got to ask what you've been watching, and since the last show, Mr. Stephen, what has been holding your interest? Well, you know what? I always um, seem to come on and say, well, I haven't had time to watch anything or I haven't watched anything Asian. <coughs> this week, I can absolutely say I have not only watched something Asian, but in shock horror, and which all our audience are going to not believe this, but I've actually watched an anime film. Um, <laughs> oh, it's a good start. <laughs> I've wa- well, you know, it just doesn't happen often without your, um, without your prodding. Um, so I watched um, The Empire of Corpses, um, from 2015, um, produced by Wit Studios, directed by Ryotaro Makihara. Um, it's based on a uh, inc- incomplete novel by a guy who went by the name of Project Ito, who, who sadly passed away. And basically, what it appealed to me was the premise. I'm an absolute sucker for both sort of Victorian steampunk and. Uh, Sort of stories where real world and fictional characters coexist. So I'm a sucker for, um, for example, Kim Newman's Anno Dracula work, which um, and for Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, things like that. Yeah. And this kind of sits in that world. Um, it basically is set in uh, a Victorian England where um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein actually happened and. Rather than it being a one-off, um, some hundred years before, people finally sort of picked up on the idea. And the idea was when the when the government realised you could make um, soldiers out of the out of the undead, then it's maybe something worth um, worth progressing on. Um, and so it's it, yeah, it's it's a it's a sort of a Victorian sci-fi cross boy's own adventure kind of romp where a bunch of characters led by um, John Watson before he met Sherlock um, sort of romp, romp, romp around the world um, trying to discover the the original notes of Victor Frankenstein um, and for the most part it's, it's absolutely brilliantly enjoyable um, it's obviously ticking off all my boxes it's beautiful to look at um, all I would say is that the first half is vastly superior to the conclusion. Um, your mileage may vary, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, in many ways, it's it's everything I hate about anime. There's a lot of unfeasibly large breasts <laughs> and characters whom I can't quite tell their gender, and maybe a bit too much um, talking and exposition. But I really enjoyed it because I like the, you know, it's it's got some deep stuff to say about the nature of self and souls and taboo subjects like, you know, dead, dead people coming to life <laughs> and things like that. So, yeah, really, really, really enjoyable. Uh, well, for myself, it's actually a, a few things I've got to discuss this week. Uh, first off, we've got a bit of a surprise as it's a Western film, which is actually more of an Eastern film. That makes sense, and it probably may do mm-hmm. once I get into this one. Um, and that's the Great Wall, which I know a lot of people dismissed uh, back in 2016 when it was released because it had Matt Damon in it. But this is uh, directed by uh, Zhang Zimu, who is obviously best known for you know, giving us the likes of Hero and House of Flying Daggers, and perhaps to let's just think, uh, Curse of the Golden Flower which I think is much like this film is vastly underrated and if you've not watched The Great Wall just because obviously it's Matt Damon at The Great Wall of China then you're really doing yourself a disservice as basically Matt Damon much like William Defoe's um, inclusion here is basically so they could flog it to American audiences this is very much a typical Zhang Zemo movie the characters all 
about to say about oh a good 85 percent of the film is subtitles so you've got characters speaking in native tongue which is just fantastic and of course it's his traditional use of color and style and featuring a cast of thousands as we find out that the great war was actually set up not to keep the mongolians out as we all assumed but instead to keep out a horde of monstrous creatures that appear every 1700 years to as the film it says it's to punish china for their sins uh because of course nothing could be just overblown and dramatic like that but uh, it's a really fun monster romp. It's as I said, it's uh, it's you know ancient China with monsters, which is just a really great premise, and it's constantly inventive. Uh, so if you're a fan of like you know the things like the Dynasty Warriors games, and just like a fan, a fan of like just a steampunk bit within like a ancient Chinese setting, then you get a lot out of this film as it's constantly creative and features some really great performances uh, throughout, including. Uh, English-speaking performance by Andrew Andy Lowell, who I didn't know could speak English, but apparently he can certainly act and act and put across that he can speak English. So uh, we also get uh, Jing Tian as well, who uh, is really good as the female gem- one of the female generals. Which I just, as I say, it's a shame that we all kind of dismiss this film as it is really cool to look at and it's a lot of fun and really good pacing behind it. So I mean, Stephen, were you? as narrow-minded as the rest of us or did you actually yeah check absolutely it out? no no i was i was narrow-minded i got to be honest with you <laughs> the uh, i got it's, it's it's not so much it wasn't it wasn't the whole matt damon thing and western actors thing because I'm, I'm kind of over that 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 happens and of course it happens the other way as mm. well you know it's it's an international market these days and i'll live with um the odd strange um character uh, a- acting placement if it you know if in there in the name of world cinema, I just don't like these Chinese CGI blockbusters. Okay, which there are a lot of um, <laughs> things like the Great Monster Hunt and things like that, which have come out in recent years. Um, they're, they're they're fine. They just don't appeal to me. Says the man who watches superhero films. But, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm allowed to be um, <laughs> <coughs> hypocritical on that one. But yeah, well obviously if you say it's good, maybe one day I'll um, I'll check it out if I catch it on a streaming service. It's definitely worth checking out. I mean, it was on, I like yourself, I, it just turned up on Channel 4. So I thought, well, might as well watch it because it's on. Because I guarantee, whenever anything that I feel like watching comes on a streaming service, I only tend to watch it as soon as it's leaving the service. I've, for some bizarre reason, I just add it to the watch, watch list and then just completely forget about it. So, But uh, certainly plenty of with looking to the month ahead obviously we've got the 31 days of halloween coming up um when you're obviously listening to this depending on when we've got it out we will be holding our own 31 days of halloween for asian horror over on our facebook page and uh, instagram and things so make sure you're checking out our social media and uh, hit those likes and subscribe buttons while you're over there and every day we'll be highlighting a different uh, Asian horror film for you to go and check it out from the classics to the obscure we're going to cover a real nice range of uh, films on there uh, Stephen I mean are you actually doing the 31 days of Halloween this year or are you not going to um, so what's the rule what's the rule I have to watch a film every day yeah or? basically basically <laughs> the the plant the idea is that uh, you have to watch 31 horror films before Halloween back in the early days it used to be that you had to watch a film a day but you know people have lives and things that we don't live these like carefree existences where we can just sit and watch a film every day so the general consensus is as long as you hit hit your fairly one film total then you can sort of do it in any any order you can like binge watch like five a day if you wanted something to sort of make up your numbers but you just have to watch fairly one horror films so well i can't promise to watch 31 asian horror films but i will almost certainly attempt the challenge and have a very busy 30th of October <laughs> <laughs> but I'll publish what I'm doing on the um, on the social media of course I used to always watch um, I can't remember what it was I'm a cyborg but I'm it's okay on um, Halloween for some reason for about three years in a row that's such a oh, random like, choice of all the films you can absolutely, watch absolutely isn't it it's absolutely and uh, I'm out of that habit now and I'll, I'll watch obviously I'll be watching some horror films but um 31 that's quite a stretch but then that'll give me some uh, 
some meat for for my own podcast wouldn't it <laughs> true true this year we have chosen a tale of two sisters for our halloween special so that will be our halloween viewing for the show so if you haven't checked it out already or if you uh, are a fan definitely let us know your thoughts on that film as we'd uh, love to hear from yourself and you know join us if uh, if you've not checked it out and cross it off your own cinema shameless because it's yeah it's your cinema shame. I know it's my cinema shame, and it's constantly like one of those those Asian horror movies which constantly like pops up. It's like ten Asian horror movies that everyone must see, and it's all like, you know, I work, we work in the field, and I still have for whatever reason still not watched it. So, um, and was in our own top fifty, so it's about time. Yes, definitely, definitely. So. <laughs> Continuing on, obviously, what I've been uh, watching. Next up, obviously, filling our kung fu quota for this episode. We've got Five Element Ninjas from 1982, directed by Chang Che. Uh, Chang Che, obviously a regular with the Shaw Brothers, and this is just glorious kung fu nonsense, as uh, we have a young martial artist seeking revenge on the ninjas who killed his martial arts brothers and teacher. Uh, these ninjas in particular are, of course, color coded ninjas but unlike the american colorful ninjas these uh, ninjas also have different purposes as they represent the five different elements so i mean steven what would you think those five elements are well give me one so at least i know what the uh... so you obviously got <laughs> like, like water earth, like <laughs> earth fire water air um and another one <laughs> <laughs> well according to uh chang che the last two that you're missing is wood and gold. Of course. It's like... It's like <laughs> Why like not? Wedding anniversaries. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, each of these ninja groups, they have their own sort of, like, fighting style. Like, the red ninjas are obviously fire, so they can start, like, fires and have, like, used flares. Uh, the gold ninjas have just blind their opponents. And then you've got water ninjas who hide under the water and sort of leap out and attack people with big spears. So... Really cool stuff. Uh, the Wood Ninjas, if we're obviously completing it, they disguise themselves as a tree, which apparently is very effective. But uh, it's a surprisingly bloody entry. Depends, depends, depends where you are, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, if you're in the in city. A wood, that could be really good. <laughs> or the <laughs> beach or something. I don't think a tree disguises the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the middle of Bratnell Town Centre. <laughs> Maybe not so much. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a really fun, fast-paced Shaw Brothers entry is surprisingly bloody as well. It's always surprising when we have like a Shaw Brothers movie and it's like really violent because I, for some reason I've got into my head that the like Shaw Brothers are sort of like more traditional sort of like kung fu movies rather than the more bloody ones. But they got films in their catalogue such as like the Battle Wizard and uh, which are obviously quite gory. So uh, Death and Five Element Ninjas is up there with like Web of Death and the if you like your kung fu a bit more blood a little more. Uh, sort of like paint being sloshed around the screen. Then uh, I was gonna, I was gonna say, when you say blood, is it that bright red stuff? Yes, it's it's the bright red out. stuff. It's not like a sort of vengeance where it's like hose pipes of blood, but you do get the uh, bright red blood because everyone's. I'm trying to make it. It sort of doesn't mean you got a lot of iron in your blood, is it? Uh, I don't. I think it means you've got a lot of dulux <laughs> in your blood. <laughs> yes, it does mean you got a lot of oxygen, um, but not that red. Yeah, and not that sticky. Just really. Got really good circulation, um, but yeah, Five Element Inches is probably one I will we will cover on the show at some point down the line. As uh, I think you really get a kick out of it, Stephen. And better than well, you can watch it on Amazon Prime, and uh, the cut that they've got on there is the Celestial um, cut, so it's really nice and cleaned up. It's not like the one you find on YouTube, which is pretty muddy. Uh, so definitely worth uh, checking out if you've got your Amazon Prime. And as I said, Amazon Prime, as we said before, is just like the greatest old school video shop at the moment, just the amount of you just yeah, you just have to be a bit careful on it because sometimes there's two versions of films, and one's like one that you'd have got back in the eighties from the video shop, <laughs> and then one's a nice um nice clean version. It's it's tricked me up a couple of times. I thought I'm not watching this, and then realised there was two versions on. Oh really? They don't they don't seem to have very good um duplicate <laughs> um. Yeah, no, no algorithm for missing out the duplicates, which is something I don't see on things like Netflix, where, or, or even iTunes, yeah. which I've used in the past. But Amazon just seems a bit more. It's just up there. <laughs> I've not, I've not encountered that issue. I've encountered the issue where is this title is not available. It's like, well, why don't you just delete it from the catalogue then? Why, why have it here taunting me? 
and I do I do dislike the I have Amazon Prime yeah because I realised the amount of stuff I was ordering from Amazon even if I never watched a film the free postage was going to pay off within a year yeah which is a sad indictment of my lack of searching for things on the internet but what I hate is um, I find lots of films I want to see and then find out they're part of another £5 per subscription you've got to subscribe oh, to Arrow right, yeah. or the BFI or 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 <coughs> and suddenly you've got about 37 subscriptions going I mean I wouldn't ever do that yeah because I wouldn't not one of those single subscriptions would I probably get the five pound a month value out of over a year. Just sign up I'd, for I'd be like a month. Buy a couple of. Yeah, just it's just I, I find it a bit bit of false advertising. Again, with Netflix, I know what I'm getting. It's not always brilliant in terms of certain sorts of films, certainly in world cinema, but it's okay. And and Amazon just gives me this false hope. I search for a film and I find it, and then find out, oh, you've got to sign up for the BFI player as well. <laughs> and it's like, oh God, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least Netflix is moving more towards producing its own content rather than importing content. Because for years, the issue we've had, obviously, being here in the UK, and I know Shutterhouse has this issue where if you're on the, in the US, you get this wonderfully huge catalogue of stuff to watch, and then if you're here in the UK, you get half that catalogue. And uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, we've mentioned it before. We like the Joe Bob Breaks double feature, and we'll get one film. So, yeah, but um, I can see. Uh, I think again, I think we talked about this before. Netflix won't be interested in old back catalogues of other people's stuff. Eventually, it's a it's a TV channel, isn't it? Now that that that, that also produces its own movies, or yeah. if it doesn't produce them, it it distributes them as a platform and I think that's where it'll be it won't be the place to go and look for old stuff it'll just be its own Netflix stuff which is fine I I watch enough of it again to make that worthwhile well well, we're obviously, I mean, talking about obviously Netflix exclusives and something that I did also watch just today, uh, which is one of their anime exclusives, and that's the uh, the anime visual album that Stur- Sturgill Simpson has put out, uh, called Sturgill Simpson Presents Sound and Fury, and uh, this is directed by Jumpei uh, Mizu Musaki, who is, according to uh, Letterbox, has done nothing else. But uh, yeah, this is basically, if you liked the Animatrix or more recently loved Death and Robots, you should definitely check this out as basically it, it is just a visual album. You get to hear the whole of Stilgar Simpson's album, uh, Sound and Fury, and the whole thing is just set uh, to this sort of steampunk, futuristic, cyberpunk um world where you got the blending of like samurai elements and uh steampunk and cyberpunk and just like fast cars and robots and mecha and it's just all these wonderful things that we tend to vibe off here on the show especially myself uh sort of thrown into this crazy mix and as i say it's set against the music of stego simpson who i have no idea who he is um apparently he's important but i've never heard of him but the soundtrack's pretty good and uh, the the film itself looks really stunning, and it's, as I said, if you're a fan of the Animatrix and uh, love Death and Robots, you really get a kick out of this. And it's the sort of project I'd love to see Netflix doing more of, just doing experimental little projects like this. And as I said, it's only a short little thing at 41 minutes, so hardly take up a huge amount of time. But while the main sort of main sort of story in here, uh, which has obviously got like this wandering samurai style character seeking revenge against these two corporate like uh figures that uh that bumped off his friends uh the there is a couple of sort of like offshoot stories in here which didn't seem to work as well and the songs weren't as good so it's not perfect but at the same time it's a fun time while it lasts and uh so the the main meat story is worth checking out and definitely if you do watch it stay to the end of the after credits for huge uh, extended battle sequence uh, that which I'm sure that they shot and then just cut from the film because they just realised they couldn't fit it into the song so uh, definitely one worth checking out if you've got Netflix so. 41 minutes I might even do that check out the trailer, we put the trailer up on our <laughs> Facebook page and uh, it gives you a good idea of what you're going to gonna get but certainly it was, uh, it was fun to watch while I was uh, looking for something to pass the time this morning so 
But uh, yeah, I'd love to see more anime visual albums because it seems to be the thing at the moment that you got artists like Beyonce did her visual album, which I think was Lemonade. Um, I think Beck did one a few albums ago as well, where he created music videos for every song in the album just in his mm. his house with like him and his friends and DIY props. It was pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the <laughs> we could talk about music videos on a completely different podcast, I think, but. Um... Uh, obviously, the distribution of you know when it was um, it, for us, you know, once a week on top of the pops or on children's TV on Saturday morning or later on MTV. Now, I guess the way to show your videos is on on YouTube or similar streaming platforms. Yeah. Um So people are making more and more videos for more and more of the songs on their albums, and obviously, money necessitates some of them get a bit lo-fi, don't they? And I guess animation is one way of doing that. Well, um, uh, somebody I quite like, a in, sort of Taiwanese artist Joanna Wang, did something very similar as well. Um, made a whole bunch of quite lo-fi videos for every song on one of her albums, House of Bullies. So it's a, it's an international phenomenon because we demand that free media, don't we? Yeah, and I mean, certainly with by using anime, it allows you to create some really insane visuals that you wouldn't be able to get if you were trying to do it as a live action version. And so it just allows you to go completely out there. Um, so, and and also by the sort of the lesser frame weight of a, of an anime, also enables you to do it, I guess, a, a bit more quickly and a bit more cheaply. This is the thing. I don't know how quick it is to for studios to produce a project like this because I was assuming that producing animation. Especially something as complex as this. I mean, this is like Mad Max meets Heavy Metal with nods to like Cowboy Bebop in there and Neon Genesis Evangelion. Um, so, so t- when you look at the complexity of some of these sequences, it just makes you wonder it's like how long it would take for, for someone to actually put this together. And in many ways, it felt like a throwback to uh, like the production IG videos that Linkin Park did. Um, oh like breaking the habit was one and there was a another one that they uh did which had like uh the robots versus monkeys uh one which i remember being really cool so and of course um and, and the similar that's what gorillas do isn't it i mean gorillas exists as that kind of pseudo anime animation it's jamie hewlett obviously it's british through and through but it's in that idea that all the songs get a get an animated video yeah. because that's the way that they can they can exist Definitely, I mean, you can go even further back. I mean, we can go back to 2003 with, like, Discovery from Daft Punk. They did mm. uh, that Interstellar 5555, the story of the secret star system, which got really poor distribution for the amount of fuss that they made about it. It seemed to be, like, in every single magazine them talking about the release of this film, and they got the worst distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least it made a lot more sense than the other video they did with the... Which was them, them and then like robot suit guys, um, and it had like robot weddings and stuff. It was just really bizarre. <laughs> Only now we're we talking about it. <laughs> yes, it's, it's like all these years later, we now talking about this uh, video that nobody bothered to watch. So, onto our selection for this evening, uh, we are going to be looking at the terrorizers. And uh, this is a film directed by Edward Yang from 1986. And uh, Stephen, I mean, you said prior to us going into this that you're a fan of this director. Yeah, so I'm a fan of not just Edward Yang, but of um, he's part of a movement, sort of a a new a new Taiwan cinema, um, which sort of had its roots in the mid to early 80s um there are other directors like um now edward yang's easy because i can say his name but uh, <laughs> uh hu xiaoshen and uh, sing ming liang the three of them are probably the sort of the godfathers of this movement um coming when taiwan was coming out of its of a quite a complicated period in its history I and mean, it's got an incredibly complicated history and some of that is important to understand for tonight's film, I guess. I say tonight's film. You could be listening to this in the morning, couldn't you? Into, into this episode's film. Um, where, uh, historically, it's obviously grown up as a um, as an island off the coast of mainland China, a large island off the coast of mainland China. Uh, initially, 
settled by um, Dutch, the Dutch, um, and was known as the island of Formosa. Um, more recently, in the 20th century, with Mao Zedong's um, takeover of mainland China and his communist government takeover, the um, the main government of China uh, decamped to the island and set themselves up as the Republic of China um, and put the island under martial law. So this film, 1986, martial law ended in 1987. It was already beginning to come down. Obviously, you and I growing up, mate, we would have seen just about every bit of plastic and junk was made in Taiwan at that time. So it was um, an a really quick industrialization in the 70s and 80s. Um, like I said, it was under martial law and a quite harsh government. And so it was freeing itself of those shackles. It was, and it was growing up really quickly as a country. Obviously nowadays, much more recently, it's become the sort of the, the progressive area of of that area of asia very big on lgbt rights on young people on music um things like that it, it, it's, it's like the anti-china but obviously mainland china want to consider it part of china and i've been to taiwan and it's very different that the, the young people consider themselves taiwanese and want to be part of the real world um whereas older people want to be part of mainland china because they consider themselves chinese it's got a horrible political status where most countries don't even recognise it as a country, um, including Great Britain. Um, I think only two countries have actually got embassies in Taipei, the capital. So it's this weirdly super modern, super progressive country that has, in its very recent past, very similar to um, South Korea, uh, that was under a similar regime at the time, um, but it's had quite an oppressive past um there's some historical massacres of, of innocent people and things like that and sort of echoes of what may be going on these days in hong kong so what we've got to put is um terror after all that we've got to put the terrorizers in context of this is set in a taiwan that is on the edge of a new way of being um coming out of that that era of, of martial law and quite right-wing government, that industrialization is coming quickly to it, that the social norms and mores of the of, of um, tradition are being changed. There's obviously a sort of big American influence there with American, um, uh, the American army being based there and, and around there. Um, so it's, it's an interesting time in its... Um, in this existence and Edward Yang in particular um, only made seven films I think seven films yeah seven films this is his third um, third feature film and I think it's a good starting point for his films mostly because it's less than two hours long <laughs> which I thought was only fair <laughs> to put, put to put you through but it is as um, as we often advertise it is quite an artsy film. It's a film that title and even its Wikipedia entry um, probably a bit misleading. It's it's cinematic trailer as well as incredibly misleading. It's it's a film that's quite talky. Uh, well, not talky's maybe the wrong word, isn't it? It's um it's quite low key until a very violent climax. Um, so I was interested to see how you'd um. How you'd enjoy it, Edward. Um, it's, it's not my favourite Edward Yang film, but I think it's a good starter. Now, I, I put this watching this film. I put it in that experience <laughs> like when you, if you ever done any sort of like uh, freelance work at all, you've been sent to watch something, and you come away from the experience, and you're like pondering to yourself how you're going to write about it because you have no clue what the hell you just watched. And this was the experience. Even now, I have no clue what I watched. I, it does seem to be a collection of random scenes like strung together, and I thought, "Wow, this this can't be right. That can't be the the person who who doesn't like this movie." And I look at Letterbox, and it's nothing but five star reviews as far as the eye can see. So perhaps I'm too much of a dum dum for this film, or too low brow. But I don't, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think yeah. so. I think um, it's quite a lot. I mean, the other directors that I mentioned are proponents of what's known as slow cinema 
and you'll find exactly the same. You'll go to Letterbox, you'll go to any newspaper sort of review site, go to the Guardian reviews or something like that, and you'll find all their films are incredibly well thought of. Um, four and five stars across the board. And Edward Yang in particular, partly because he died young or reasonably young and therefore has left uh, and, and only got really well known with the last film which was, was released just before he died. Um, so I think there's a bit of that. Um, I think it's really hard for a, I want to say a normal person, is that fair enough, to, to, to actually break this because it's elliptical filmmaking um, characters are drawn with the lightest of touches um, and 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 as you say it does appear to be a lot of disconnected fragmented scenes hey, you can certainly have a go I, I mean I love the fact that you described it as a jigsaw puzzle because I saw some other people discuss this jigsaw puzzle you put I, together I mean, but, well, this is just like a jigsaw puzzle that you like throw on the floor and then lose half the pieces and then try to put that together it's very, it is very fragmented, as we'll probably uh, get to in a minute. And I'm so glad you mentioned, obviously, this is part of the Taiwanese new wave, because much like the French new wave, it's not um, sort of traditional filmmaking or certainly traditional storytelling um, in any sort of way, shape, or form. It's, it's very fragmented, is uh, certainly the way I would describe the story we have. But, I mean, certainly, if you want to have a go at trying to break down what we... What we're supposed to be watching here, and then we're, we're, we'll have a look at seeing how much of that actually matched up to what what the experience I came away with this film. <laughs> okay, so what we have, we have a story of fundamentally about four people in I assume contemporary Taiwan so sort of mid 80s Taiwan um, we have trying to attach them as an order that we meet them we have a, a young boy who's um, well, not that young sort of a teenager um, appears to be a photographer um, who at the beginning of the film see leave his girlfriend who's reading a book and he can't sleep so he goes out with his cameras and um, Hayes uh, sort of stumbles upon a crime in progress. Um, as part of that crime in progress, the police are around and there's some guns shooting off and someone's dead in the street. We don't really know what's going on. And a young girl and her long-haired accomplice jump out of a second-floor window. The girl falls badly on her ankle and sort of rolls behind a bin. They catch the long-haired guy but don't see her. The young guy does, and the sort of young girl stumbles off into the distance, and she's kind of important later on. <laughs> and then we meet a married couple, um, Yu Fen and Li Zhong. Um, she's working on a novel. Um, he works in a hospital, although what as isn't entirely clear to me. He just wears a white coat, but he doesn't appear to be a doctor, so I assume he's some kind of administrator bulk of the films around their lives I guess so um, it turns out that the um, the wife is suffering from depression um, she's struggling to got writer's block she's struggling to finish this um, this novel or this this story that she's working on which is for some competition um, she's obviously dissatisfied with her marriage we find out that actually she's had some success in the past but <laughs> she can only write about what she has experience, so most of her stories about people from her past before she got married, and things that she's been through or events that they went through. Um, she stumbles upon an old flame who says, "Hey, I recognise me in one of those stories," um, which um, then leads to them having an affair, and she eventually leaves her husband for this man. At the same time, the husband we find out is um, well a bit of a dick. Um, <laughs> Uh, as he goes to work, he finds out his boss has died of a stroke and him and a, a close colleague are up for the promotion and he basically frames his colleague um, as part of some previous corruption that might have gone on that was clearly done by the um, the guy who had the stroke. Um, his 
you know, it's, it, in, in a way, what he's trying to do is trying to keep his wife happy. He's trying to, he's trying to up their social status. However, they've 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 gone too far apart because, as she says later on, she only knows now about being married and she can't write stories about that. Meanwhile, <laughs> the 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 girl, the the girl with the <laughs> broken foot or the sprained ankle, um, has gone back to her mother, and she seems to be a bit of a delinquent. Her mother doesn't know what to do with her. Her mother's one of these. Um, Tiger mums with uh, tracksuit and bouffant hair, and yeah, I assume it's her mother. It does say so. I, I did think to start with it was her, like a the brothel owner, but I think it's her mum. And she doesn't think much of her, but the girl's stuck at home, and the girl decides to make loads of prank phone calls. One of these prank phone calls somehow gets to uh, our depressed novelist and basically says that um, she's having an affair with the husband, which isn't true at all, but is the instigation to make. Um, to make the, the, the wife leave the husband. Um, the young boy photographer is obsessed with the girl and there's some stuff that goes on there. Um, and this all leads up to basically the husband going off the deep end um, with a gun and killing a bunch of people and also ending up dead himself. And um, the photographer disappears for us never to see him again <laughs> quite near the end of the film. And at the very end, we see the um, the wife wake up in bed with her lover and vomit to the side of the bed because it's all got too much. How much of that last ten minutes is real or not real, I couldn't tell you. But basically, it's a story about how interconnected all these lives are and how one little ripple, one little change, a, a prank phone call in this case, can lead to... The, the the classic butterfly effect where that little that <coughs> little phone call led to people leaving and eventually people dying. Was that the film you saw? <laughs> Parts of it certainly were. So I mean, if you listen to that, I'm thinking, oh wow, Stephen's just told us the whole film. Now, there's no point in us watching this now. Now what Stephen's done is giving you an outline so you can actually follow this jumbled mess of a movie. Because here we have a film where this is it, it suffers from the same issue that Brest Hees and Ellis has in the fact that he can only draw like art school blonde boys that he so you know no doubt tapping into his own sexual preference and here we have a film where all the characters are sort of aged between 17 and 35 and as you're a male character you more than likely look the same as every other male character in the movie which is oh, except for the moustache. The guy with the moustache is pretty recognisable. Okay. Oh, an Asian, <coughs> an Asian slash who we see at the beginning. Um, so we these. So trying to figure out who anyone is in this movie is just an absolute nightmare. So unless they are have got a lab coat or they got a camera or some something to sort of distinguish who they are. All these characters seem very interchangeable, and certainly the the doctor character in particular that just felt like so much filler it never seemed to go anywhere and i mean there's there's like four or five plot threads at at work here and nothing's ever told in any sort of logical order we just sort of drift in and out of these characters lives the only sort of character that has any sort of like that felt like any meat to a story is the uh, so-called white girl who's the uh, the girl with the injured foot who uh, the photographer becomes uh, a little obsessed with, should we say, as he makes that that wonderful mosaic of uh, of a picture of, of her like on A4 sheets he's taped to the wall, and um, yeah, it just there was moments where it felt like something that that I, I enjoyed moments of this film, and then there'd be other times where it just felt I just felt so lost as to what I'm supposed to be watching or who I'm supposed to be following or why characters are interacting with who they they are um as i said the the so-called white girl um or white chick depending on which uh, version you have she i mean she has a very interesting sort of plot thread it reminds me a lot of uh, bridget lynn in chunking express this idea of this criminal figure who's on a job that's gone wrong and is now essentially on the run and hiding out and uh, it felt very much that the same for her character because all her accomplices have all been arrested or killed. So she's sort of like the last one and all her employers want nothing to do with her. Uh, as you said, she is seen as a delinquent by her mother and she's trying to sort of come up with her next move which involves robbing uh, 
it seems uh, wealthy businessman types. Well, it's a, it's a, she sets us up as a prostitute and then nicks their money while they're having a shower and runs off. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think, I think it's just men in general she's after. <laughs> as said, she has a more interesting sort of, uh, sort of plot line to follow. Everyone else is, is very sort of minor stuff. It's sort of like you've got the husband and wife and he can't sleep because she's reading and, I love the fact she said, oh, I've only got a couple more pages to finish my book. And she's like very clearly in the middle of her book. So, so yeah. I couldn't tell if that's just like a real dick move on her part or it was just like bad scripting or what. But Well, I remember they read the books the other way around. I know, but still, if you're in the middle of a book, no matter which direction you're going, you're not two pages from the end. She's also, she's also asleep two seconds later when he leaves. <laughs> so, yeah, I... I can I can I can get why you didn't like it or why you felt lost. Um, I've got glad. a feeling that, that the new Taiwan cinema isn't for you. No, <laughs> and I tell you, I tell you, this is well straightforward compared to some of the others. Um, I I love it though, and maybe that's because of my interest in the country and in the history. Um, so you've got to look at some of these characters as examples of of how people were at that time in that country so that the white chick or whatever she's called what was she called yeah what do we say she's white chick teenage hustler teenage hustler <laughs> she's called on wikipedia um eurasian girl i've seen her as as well even though at no point is it mentioned that she's half white <laughs> it makes no sense because she doesn't look i mean i'm no. I think it's supposed to be due to her heritage, but she doesn't yeah. look um, to have any sort of like European sort of like uh, bloodline attached to her at all. Not at all. That <coughs> doesn't look classically Eurasian, like say someone like uh, Nancy Quan would or something mm. like that. Anyway, I think she, you know, she she represents this kind of disaffected youth, no future, you know, classic teen trope. Um, the husband and wife is, you know, he he's trying for that traditional. Um, sort of Chinese thing he's looking after her it's his job to work hard and get the promotions that are due to him and you know and, and she'll stay with him forevermore and she should just settle down and be a good housewife whereas you know this is a Taiwan entering the modern world where women can go out and get jobs where women can do artistic things um, he says at the beginning or something that uh, writing a novel shouldn't be a matter of life or death and of course, that novel absolutely does <laughs> cause his death in the end. Um, so there's sort of some sort of clever stuff around there in terms of um, the nature of art. Um, but I can see if you were just watching it, expecting, you know, what does it say, drama, crime, or as its description, you know, it, it, there are crimes happening on the uh, periphery and bookending the film. Um, and it's quite violent at the end. That end sequence is yeah. almost from out of nowhere, isn't and it? You, you say that though. It's sort of like it's sort of like the, the oh, the, the amusing me no end when I review it. It's like in the bloody and violent finale, and I'm watching it going, this isn't even close. It's not. And it's it's no. It's no Tarantino. I'll I mean, that, but even but, um, but, not even like Tarantino stands, but even just in like the standards for Asian cinema, like what we consider oh, like a, a bloody yeah, yeah. ending is not. Doesn't even come close. I mean, this isn't like up there with like like Ringo Lam or John Woo, who will show you a bloody end. It's not, but in terms of an art house film, it possibly is. I suppose <laughs> so, but from a, from a film where we've spent uh, the previous hour and a half <laughs> um, with a lot of jitty chatty talking stuff, um, the biggest crime that's happened is that someone couldn't sell some stolen cameras, um, and. Uh, other other scams have all gone awry. Um, that the guys got driven to basically becoming a uh, you know driven, driven to stealing a gun, and shooting up people. I think it's quite shocking, but it's all within the you know. I, I see, I hear absolutely what you're saying. This is not um, extreme cinema by any way, shape, or form. It's not heroic bloodshed. It's none of that. But it's a uh, you know it's it's a it's a low key drama. Um, that speaks to me, but doesn't speak to you. But that's fine, I think, because that's kind of the point. This is a this is a very different sort of film. The most we've covered so far, 
I can't think of anything else we've covered that is quite like this. The only thing that I can I can think of that 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 would come close to it would would be like Chunking Express, because Walker mm. World obviously operates within that sort of art house sort of world. Certainly not to the, the extent that we we see here. But even if you even if you didn't like Chunking Express and like the first story in Chunking Express is. It's a bit of a turn off for a lot of people. You've always got the cinematography, haven't you, to fall back on, and the and the strong characters that are in those films, in in that film, and and in one Carl Weiss films in general. Yeah. So even if you don't like it, you can appreciate it as a visual spectacle. I don't think anyone's going to come to the Terrorizers and say, "Oh my God, that was a visual spectacle." That's the thing. Is there's nothing visually too experimental or impressive um, here at all. It's very sort of standard a very sort of standardly short film it's just in its construction where it, it gets a little fancy and I mean as I said we at least with with Chunking Express as you point out you, if you don't like the first story you've always got the second story to to enjoy so it's sort of it's got another crack at redeeming itself and the two stories are different enough it doesn't feel like you just that you're just sort of watching people do very sort of bland menial sort of things and I mean there are obviously other directors out there who do focus on characters doing just everyday things and and make it at least seem interesting I mean obviously the likes of Sofia Coppola for example or we can look at the cinema de look movement which obviously Luc Besson came up with and we had films such as Diva which the whole time watching this film I, I couldn't help but think if this had been done as part of like the cinema to look movement, perhaps I would have enjoyed it more. Um, perhaps it would have had a little more visual flair that the film was obviously missing to hold my attention. But as a result of it just being so sort of standard and every character feeling so interchangeable, apart from like one or two, it just was such a a tedious sort of film to get through. And I mean, it's it's only as you said, it's only about an hour and forty minutes. So it's not even the longest film, and. Yes, I'm like an hour in, and I shot off an email to to Kim over movies and tea. Sort of like I think I found the Taiwanese so um, Sophia Coppola here, but it's just tedious. And uh, <laughs> I think if you if you're thinking about shooting emails off while you're watching film, it's something's not working. No, I I, I can yeah. hear that. I think um, I'm in a way I'm kind of glad that he didn't say, "Oh yeah, that was great." Because I wasn't expecting you to love it. <laughs> just sending me on to fail here with this. <laughs> no, no, it's not a matter of fail, is it? Because you know, there's plenty of films that you've brought up that I've thought, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> I'm looking at you, John Woo. <laughs> I think this is the this um, is the the thing as well, and it certainly obviously brings into like the question. I mean, obviously, as you you mentioned many times before, that we've set up this this division on the on the show where you bring the class and I bring the trash. So I don't think that you know if you like John movies that you perhaps could watch this and not get something out of it. I'm just talking on a very personal level here that it did nothing for me. But at the same time, I think that uh, you know you should you should be put off by the by the fact I didn't get it. I mean, as Stephen said, you'd say that you wouldn't. This is still an accessible film. It's not like just I, I purely think, for the arts crowd. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'll just have a look. Um, so other people, other directors in this in this school that I think they wouldn't like to call it a movement, but it it is a movement because it was made possible by the by the the, the end of a dictatorship, yeah. a military dictatorship. That that that's not that's not put bones around it. So there was an opportunity for left leaning experimental directors to actually start making films um, because we've you know. Taiwan's got a strong and big history in making films. Um, Bridget Lin, um, I talked about. Did I do that? Did we talk about that in that episode? I can't remember if we did or we didn't. But um, yeah, Bridget Lin came from Taiwan. Plenty of actors and actresses have come. Joey Wang, another one. Um, you know, they, they were making films, but mostly uh, sort of classic Busha or drama type films. Uh, melodrama. That's the word I'm yeah. after. Um, what there hadn't been is a is a different, fresher, more contemporary. That maybe that's the best word. Contemporary. Um, look, it was very much 
inspired, as you rightly pointed out earlier on, by the French New Wave, by certain Italian directors. Um, so it's a different voice. Um, but I can absolutely see that 90% of people who watch this film would probably walk out in 10 minutes. Yeah, I, I, well done for lasting an hour before sending off the email. But for me, <laughs> well, I just adore it. <laughs> this is the thing, because it's not like a, a case, because we're obviously choosing to watch it on the show, it's not the case of I can sort of like skip out halfway through, because <laughs> I have to watch it all the way to the end. Um, yeah, no. Although the, you, I mean, you obviously mentioned about the Italian influence here. I mean, the whole photographer's angle here is just basically one big homage to blow up. It it is. I've got a bit. That's the bit of the film I wasn't <coughs> interested in. Um, again, the stuff there. So the fact that he's good. At, he, so he's he's a rich boy. He seems to have the money because he goes and buys the house, the 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 apartment that the original crime happens in. Turns it into his dark room. Has a really creepy obsession with this girl, um, but nothing really comes of it. Um, and the only sort of telling thing is is that um, he says something along the lines of. Um, oh, I'm so good at photography, I'm going to be a really good sniper, because I think somewhere in the film he gets the letter which is going to send him off in his national service. Again, so it's a sort of a, a social a social thing, uh, a sociological element, a historical element to the film. But that won't mean anything to anybody who has no idea what was going on in 1986 Taiwan, right? It's a, it's a throwaway line. And I think... Um, yeah, I think the jigsaw puzzle maybe was the right thing, because you've got to pick up these little tiny pieces. Unfortunately... Most of them are white, and there are no edges, <laughs> <laughs> and it can be quite hard to put together. Well, I mean, um, the fact that we've obviously got these political contexts uh, within the film—I mean, that's perfectly once again ties it into the French New Wave because French New Wave. There's so many political aspects within those films that it's almost like a history lesson. In fact, you go learn about what was happening in the political climate and the culture at the time to understand half the time what's going on in the films. And certainly, when you look at uh, films such as like Weekend or like Simply for the Devil, it's sort of like, oh, I've got to take, in, I've got to know about all these social and political things that were happening to understand all these cutaways from the Rolling Stones just continuously playing Simply for the Devil over and over and over and over again. Um, that then that's again, this is why the French New Wave has never resonated with myself, and I think there's certainly a lot of film students out there who really rave on about how important the French New Wave is, and mainly because. Uh, Scorsese was a fan of it and I think you, unless you're a, f a filmmaker and stealing shots from it you can live your life very happily not watching French New Wave cinema No, but uh, yeah I, I, I think I guess it's called the Taiwanese New Wave for a very similar reason because it's echoing that Yeah, it's so, yeah, pushing things forward it, I mean, obviously I could sit down and we could write a 30,000 word essay on this film by picking up each scene and saying oh this means this, this means that, this means this at the end of the day if a film doesn't resonate with you that's absolutely fine as long as you understand why and as long as you tried um, so well done for not giving up and pretending you watched it <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's, I think it's not even like a film where you can like look at it and go oh yeah I don't know how this is going to end and like pull like a Brady analysis again, where he like watched the first episode of Breaking Bad and then watched the end, just so he could smugly remark, "Yeah, I knew it was going to totally end like that." <laughs> it's like, yeah, <laughs> you knew the whole, <laughs> the whole layout of this this complex uh, story, um, just by watching the first and last episodes or something. Because yeah, you knew something more than the mate, the, the writers. It, it's some <laughs> some goal to like to say you can you you can just say how something's going to end and. I think, <coughs> as I said, it was the, the promise of these, this bloody ending and seeing how they were going to even work that in. But even when it comes, it's sort of like, you're so confused as to who all these players are or why things are happening the way that they are. It's sort of like, well, I, don't, I don't get this. And uh, as you said, it just ends on this random scene where perhaps it all could have just been like, uh, been like Dallas and just saw one big dream sequence. Well, do you know what? The first time I saw the film, I thought that was a call back to the first time she'd slept with the guy. Okay. And I thought I thought the rest of the film after that had all been a dream of her imagining what the consequences of her sleeping with this guy was going to be. That probably would have been a good... Although, a good although it went a bit dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I then, after re-watching it, no, it's just that she's, she's moved in with the guy and then she's just... 
I guess she just realised that her, her husband's died by some psychic connection or something and it's made her vomit. But as with all these things, I guess everything's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Definitely. Um, anything else on this one you want to discuss? I, I don't think I'm going to put you through any more of it. Okay. But I would say... Well, how... Uh, you know, the, 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 some of our audience hopefully will... Um, We'll enjoy I'm it. sure there's no doubt. There's always there's always some people on our uh, group who just really get get um, excited when if we post something artistic or you know something a little more highbrow on uh, on the pages. Certainly when we we look at our most recent um, additions to Movie Vault from uh, Derry Brook of Blueprint Review, who's as said he does our movie vault and he uh, highlights different films that you should be uh, checking out and. I said, if you haven't uh, checked it out already, definitely go over to our blog, AsianCinemaFilmClub.wordpress.com, and uh, definitely uh, check out check out his uh, bits and pieces, as well as the archive and all the other fun stuff we have on there, such as the mixtapes and the transcripts of the um, Dark Side of Asian Cinema that Stephen obviously writes up. Um, but more recently, I mean, he was highlighting um, <laughs> Okase Karida um, of Flesh and Blood, which you can obviously check out, and that got a lot of people excited who hang out on our Facebook page so it's um, I think there's probably going to be a few of the same people who probably may get a kick out of this one and I'd really love to know what uh, what you folks made of it so if uh, you have seen the terrorizers or you're going to check out the terrorizers off, off this uh, this episode please do let us know uh, if, as I said on Facebook or Twitter or uh, off on the blog um, where, whichever social platform you prefer and let us know what you thought of the film and whether you were able to piece it all together but I mean, obviously, further you and Stephen, what would you put with this? Right. Okay. <laughs> Maybe not for you, but if you did enjoy the terrorizers, yeah. um, so I'm going to give you three films. Um, I'm going to give you another Edward Yang film. Um, the film we followed this up with, which is the film I'd really like to have put you through, but um, it is 240 minutes long and. I don't think you would have lasted. Um, so it's a brighter summer day, um, which is set back in the depths of the of the martial law period. Um, it's it's a it's a a youth drama, a um, little bit of uh, I guess a bit of Roman Juliet going on there. Um, a little bit of stuff about Western influence in Taiwan, um, and the title is um, from a. Elvis Presley's Are You Lonesome Tonight, but mis misremembered. But that's kind of the point. Um, but like I say, 240 minutes long. Um, not one for the uninitiated, but there is a beautiful Criterion Collection print of it. Um, outside of Edward Yang, I guess, the, as I said earlier, the, the two main guys are um, Hu Xiaoxian and Tsai Ming Liang. Um, the former... Um, I would pick something like Millennium Mambo from 2001. Um, Millennium Mambo is also the director's um, a f- a face that you will know is uh, Shu Kui, is in it, who's in quite a lot of his films. So that's uh, in in Hong Kong cinema where she moved to after her porn career. Um, uh, her films are mostly uh, sort of commercial and cloud freezing fair but she did quite a lot of work with um uh with who who Xiaoxian. um so that's a that's a that's a great film and it's one of those films where sort of she 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 shines um uh, but it's still slow cinema stuff and uh sing ming liang um i would go for hmm, probably the wayward cloud um Wayward Cloud set in uh, Taiwan during a drought where people have to save water and encourage to drink watermelons so watermelons become the, uh, the, 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 the the currency of the day um, Not uh, the, the nice thing well not the nice thing but one of the things about Sing Ming Lang's films is that there isn't a lot of dialogue there's barely any dialogue in the Wayward Cloud it's um, a sort of sequel to a previous film but that doesn't matter and will open with somebody having sex with a watermelon. <laughs> and if you don't find that memorable, then... Um, yeah, the, his films are a little more um, stylized than maybe the other guys. Um, but I'd be, yeah, recommend that as well. I don't suppose you've got anything you'd have. 
Um, I, I would. No, maybe an aspirin. It's <laughs> 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 just like just like lie down in a dark room. Certainly, I can think of like numerous directors in like European cinema um, that have got this sort of experimental thing going on, like. You know, like Michelle Gondry's Science of Sleep and stuff, but at the same time, a lot of the things I would refer back to would be kind of obvious. I mean, the main one I would sort of think of would be just to watch uh, Chunking Express again by Wong Kar Wai. I think that, as I said, it's a similar sort of uh, setup here, but at the same time, it's just a lot more enjoyable, a little more straightforward, and a lot more visually interesting than, than this film. So, at the moment, if we were doing like the big old rankings, it's I'm thinking that this is would be like below uh, Turtles of Surprisingly Fast Swimmers and um, oh the the anime uh, film that you picked oh the place promised in our early yeah, days yeah the place promised in our early days those will be the bottom of our our pile so far I mean yeah I mean the one car way um, connections. Is, is fair enough. Um, sort of his earlier films, as tears go by and days of being wild, very much in this vein. So, sort of ne- neo-realistic, low-key, slow dramas. Um, yeah, that's probably not 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 one for the mad, bad, and dangerous to know club. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but something that perhaps is will be our selection for our next episode as we're going to be looking at a Netflix exclusive and we're going to be timing it so that we'll be hopefully recording shortly after it hits Netflix and that is uh, Sion Sono's new film The Forest of Love which is going to be a Netflix exclusive and part of a deal that he currently has with Netflix which will include a new series as well uh, which the details of which have yet to be released but uh, The Forest of Love is his uh, latest film and one that well, I'm personally excited to uh, see. I don't know about yourself, Stephen. Well, I'm always into a new Sion Sono film, even when I don't like it. But, <laughs> you know, even the ones I don't like, there's always something interesting to talk about. Um, and then other of his films I absolutely adore. So when's that out on Netflix? So this is uh, due to be hit Netflix on the 11th of October. Um, the film itself, we've got very few details uh regarding it but uh, Netflix have given us the description a common and a would-be filmmaking crew force themselves into the lives of two grief scarred young women but nothing as as it seems and it's a gruesome and gonzo take on actual historical events so well there we go yeah <laughs> there's that to look forward to uh, but yeah we will uh, we will hopefully begin the, our episode out shortly after that airs so uh, if you have got Netflix definitely check it out and uh, watch along with us but uh, until next time if uh, you haven't done already please do like and hit the subscribe buttons whether you're listening to us on iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify or CastBox or wherever you happen to be listening to your podcast too. Um, by hitting the uh, like and subscribe buttons, it really helps raise the profile of the show and uh, gets the word out there. Much like yourselves, if you uh, like the show, definitely let your friends know or spam your enemies, whichever works for you. Uh, you can also, as always, check out our full archive on asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com and uh, on there as well you can find reviews of, of anime and movies as well as the mixtape and uh, transcripts as well there's plenty of great stuff to check out on there um, Stephen, have you got anything happening at the moment? Um, nothing special at the moment I think last time we spoke I talked about the work I was doing for In Their Own League um, I'll have another article up there soon about Nancy Quan when I finish writing it. And I should be having another episode of my own podcast out within a week or so, so probably contemporaneous with this coming out as well, where hopefully I'll be looking at a couple of Mexican films. Very nice. Um, but until uh, next time, thank you as always for listening. Thank you to my co-host Stephen. Thank you for having and, me. And uh, we'll be back next time looking at Sion Sonos Forest of Love. Good night. Hey! 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 
昨日の恋は忘れて昨日のあの子は忘れて踊り続けていたい夜なのさ月が来るだけ散っても星が燃えて落ちても踊り続けていたい夜なのさ「おどりつづけていたい夜なのさ」